You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 7th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippie. Coming up, Monaco security correspondent Ben Otsog will tell us why the United States wants Ukraine to signal that it is ready to talk peace. Also ahead, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warns the international community that words will not be enough to tackle climate change. As COP27 gets underway, our planet is sending a distress signal. The latest state of the global climate report is a chronicle of climate chaos. We'll have the latest from COP27 in Egypt. Then Monocle24 senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco will tell us all about Brazil's political transition. Hello, Marcos. The transition government is underway. I'll tell you who's leading it and who will be in a future Lula cabinet. Thanks, Fernando. And we'll be heading to the world travel market at London's Excel Centre as well. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Marcos Hippi. The United States is reportedly encouraging Ukrainian leaders to signal that they are open for peace negotiations with Russia. However, instead of pushing Kyiv to the negotiating table, the purpose is to ensure that Ukraine's allies maintain their support for the nation. For more, Monocle's security correspondent Ben Nodzog joins us live from our headquarters in Zurich. Ben is also a security expert at ETH Zurich. Ben, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Could you first tell us more about what exactly has been happening behind the scenes between Kiev and Washington, D.C.? We're not actually entirely sure, but there was a Washington Post article that caused quite a stir. And that was, well, that's actually the thing. I mean, the title was, I quote, U.S. privately asks Ukraine to show it's open to negotiate with Russia. That's actually a fairly misleading title and that explains part of the stir. And as you clarified earlier on, it's about stating that Ukraine would be open to negotiate with Russia, but of course only under certain conditions. This is not supposed to push Ukraine to negotiate because currently pretty much all experts and observers agree that there is no way to negotiate with Putin. There's no readiness to to actually settle this war, to retreat from Ukraine, to ensure any kind of lasting peace from Moscow. It's still the rhetoric of denazifying, demilitarizing a Ukraine that should not exist as a nation. So it's really tricky to see where it's really going. It is mostly in the end about PR, about appearance, as in not supporting that Ukrainian decree, not to negotiate at all, but just to make sure that Ukraine would be open to negotiate but obviously only if there's actual substance to negotiate. And anyone who's who's been calling in the US, in Germany and so on for negotiations in the past months was not able to to suggest anything in particular that can be negotiated about because currently Russia is seeking annexation of parts of Ukraine. So it's a really, really tricky one and it's a fine line. And as we see the Washington Post piece, the title is actually misleading as well. How complicated is the position of the Biden administration? How much does this article reveal about that? That is actually obviously a major point. A few months ago, there was a letter by 30 MPs, members of Congress of the Democratic side, that asked for negotiations, called for negotiations, which was 
immediately, of course, received very critically, as in um, that would mean pushing Ukraine to negotiate at the time when there is no way to negotiate. Putin is not ready to compromise in any way. So from the left, within the Democratic Party, there is a certain push towards negotiations, but that very letter was later taken back because it was considered a mistake. But what is even more important is, of course, that around half of the Republican Party, or at least its members of Congress, um, are of the opinion that the US has supported Ukraine too much in the past. And that is quite worrying. So from the left and from the right, there is actually pressure in the US to obviously focus US spending on domestic issues. And they regard spending money in Ukraine, continuing this war, even though nobody has a a blueprint for peace as unnecessary. So the Biden administration is certainly under pressure given this is election month. Now, over the weekend, looking at what has been happening elsewhere in the world, over the weekend, we saw protests in Italy, for example, against sending weaponry to Ukraine. How big of a problem is this so-called Ukraine fatigue? Do you think Kiev can trust that the support it gets will continue maybe even for years to come? That is certainly what everyone is worried about, and justifiably so, because political attention to any topic is a scarce good. Ukraine heavily relies on this solidarity and continuous support. It's not about sending 20 tanks once and then being done with it. Really continuously, it's about humanitarian aid, it's about finance, it's about ammunition and the like, because this is what sustains Ukrainians' defence. And were this allied support, the US being paramount, but also others, of course, being key, were this to decline, Ukraine would be in real trouble. So this is their biggest worry. Solidarity is really what what they have and what they need, and is also justified. But as you indicate, there are certain movements, there are demonstrations in a number of EU countries, for example, and this push in the US, as I said earlier, that support to Ukraine should decline, even though this is a very short-sighted policy, I would argue. But it's really there, and with every government change, for, like the one in, in Italy, for example, but also the likes of Lula da Silva in Brazil and in other countries, it's unclear how these new position, new governments are positioning themselves towards Ukraine. So with each election in a partner country or in a major, major country in the world, there is this worry on the Ukrainian side that they will end up abandoned at some point because... As you indicate in the question, Marcus, it may be about years, years of continued support. This war will certainly last more months, but possibly more years. Ben, what do you think are the most concerning cracks you are seeing in the Western unity? Mm-hmm. Well, it's always been exactly that, as in energy prices are obviously soaring. This is pretty much the only real impact this war has on Europe, mostly, because industry prices in the in the rest of the world, for example, in the US, which is self-sufficient when it comes to oil and gas, is less of a worry. Energy is mostly a European thing, but they're, of course, very tangible. And for example, this week we saw, or last week, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, we saw protests in Moldova as well, a very small country neighboring Ukraine. But their gas prices, which are key, of course, to, to heating and industry and so on, tripled. And this is obviously really painful for people and it creates discontent. But obviously discontent can ask governments to support the population with subsidies for energies and the like. Or it can ask governments to push for negotiations in Ukraine, which is two different matters. And 
The winter will, of course, be tricky. Currently, gas storage looks okay. Most prices are declining again, so the pressure for these protests is slightly lowering. So we can hope that people will survive the winter. And as we all know, the real cost, the real price are, are people paying in Ukraine. Kiev is experiencing daily power outages, for example, and civilian infrastructure across the country is being bombarded by Russia. So this is the real worry. This is where people are dying. And I think seeing these things in perspective will be very key. But it's a, it's a challenge for politicians to remind that there's a bigger struggle going on, that there is no way to compromise with Putin currently. It would lead to more trouble further down the line. So communication, as always, is really key with domestic audiences, with international partners towards Ukraine as well. Ukraine has been very clear in, in what it wants. President Zelensky has, for example, said that there can only be negotiations with a new president in Russia, someone who is not Vladimir Putin. If these reports are true, if Washington DC is indeed asking for Kiev to signal that it would be open for talks with Russia, how do you think Kiev and President Zelensky are reacting to this request by the US? Yeah, it's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because, I mean, you obviously understand the impetus on Ukraine's part, on Zelensky's part, that there is no negotiations with Putin. It's really hard to imagine. Um, it's someone who is almost on on a on a crusade in his own mind to destroy Ukraine, to to put it under, under Russia's control. And how could anyone um, compromise with someone who has created massacres and human rights violations, maybe even uh, acts of genocide? So this is the baseline. This explains why Kiev is so adamant to state that with Putin, there is no compromising. Whether they will ease that with the years to come, let's say um, Russia is more cornered militarily in Ukraine and actually may be ready to compromise about some something, then this may ease and then certainly things would open up. So currently this exercise or this pressure on behalf of the US is mostly a PR thing, as in to signal that to international partners that of course were there room to negotiate, Ukraine should declare negotiation, Ukraine may even do so now, and then this would reveal let's say Ukraine were to declare, we are ready to negotiate, give us the terms. And then Moscow would send the terms, which are outrageous, which would destroy Ukraine. And the world would see that. And every it would become very clear that not Kiev is the stumbling block, it is Moscow. And this is kind of how we should read these messages from the US. It's not pressure for Ukraine to settle right now. It is, if anything, pressure to make sure that it's fully revealed that Putin is not ready to compromise. But this is obviously, as I'm explaining it, it's a fine line to make and it can easily be misunderstood. Exactly. Well, just finally, this war, like all wars, will have to come to an end. Ben, how likely is it that that peace will be achieved through peace talks? Mm -hmm. Peace talks will be an element of it. That is that is quite sure. In the most bitter of wars that have happened, peace talks were usually an element But there have also been wars that were really decided militarily and purely. If we think of the end of the Second World War, for example, which was pure military defeat. But those overall are rare, and I would assume they're particularly rare because obviously even after this war, at the towards the end of this war, Russia will still exist as the Russia it is. So some agreement to come to terms with this neighbor that Russia is, a neighbor to Ukraine, a neighbor to Europe, will be element of it. But I could well imagine that As it currently is, Ukraine has momentum, it pushes ahead, it reconquers its territory to quite an extent. The negotiations, serious negotiations, may only start when, let's say, Russian forces are kicked out of eastern Ukraine, maybe still hold on to Crimea, and then it's about negotiating 
almost what comes close to Russia's defeat. And then, of course, the terms of its retreat, the terms of how sanctions may be lifted um, in return. So a lot of military action and bloodshed, but also potential Ukrainian conquest will still happen until we are at serious negotiations. I really don't see it happening anytime soon otherwise. Thank you very much for your insights, Benno. That was Monaco security correspondent Benno Zog. It's 12.12 here in London. Now is here is our own Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines. Thanks very much, Marcus. North Korea has said its most recent missile launches were simulated attacks on South Korea and the United States. The tests came as the nations conducted six-day air drills in the region. Meanwhile, South Korea says it has recovered parts of a North Korean missile. The COP27 climate change summit is getting underway in Egypt. The United Nations has said that not enough has been done to tackle emissions since last year's meeting in Glasgow. Monocle's Carlotta Ribello will have the latest from Egypt shortly. And Europe's biggest budget airline, Ryanair, made a profit of 1.4 billion euros over the summer, with passengers paying more for peak season flights. The company's CEO, Michael O'Leary, says appetite for travel is increasing, but that the industry still faces uncertainty. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks very much, Emma. We're going to get the latest from the COP27 Climate Summit in Egypt. Monaco's Carlotta Rebello is in Sharm el-Sheikh and joins us now. Good afternoon to you, Carlotta. Good afternoon. The official opening has just taken place, including a speech by the head of the UN, Antonio Guterres. What did he have to say? Yeah, so it was the official uh, start of the high-level apartment with Antonio Guterres saying uh, to leaders who are here present. He acknowledged the progress that had been made last year at COP26, but more interestingly, he really asked for this historic pact between the developed and emerging economies, which he called Climate Solidarity Pact. So this is where countries commit to reduce emissions within this decade to achieve the one-of-degree goal, and a pact where countries who are that are wealthier um, and that have big international financial institutions get ready to provide financial and technical assistance to emerging economies who are not at the same level in making investments in green um, infrastructure or green policies, but it's the only way that we can be all on the same page. And it was quite uh, amazing to stay with already a commitment to try to put everyone at the same level and acknowledging that not all countries can commit the same level of investment when they have other priorities. Now, beyond heads of state, who else are there and what have you seen so far? Yes, so because of the time difference to Egypt compared to Europe, as we are two hours ahead, traditionally COP would have started in the morning, but to try to not be so far away from the United States and the European time zone. Um, the uh, high-level part of the summit only started at midday local time, which meant in the morning I really had a, a chance to walk around and um, go to what is described as a delegation's blue zone. So this is where individual nations, some tourism boards, some um, international organizations have their own pavilions uh, with their own set of side events and side panels and a lot of the world leaders stop by there but there's all these other speakers who stop by there too and they are trying to deliver this message to you know everyone it's a good chance for those in the industry to work together um to go imagine you might be interested in investing in tanzania markets i don't know if that's a country you currently have your eye on but if you were you could walk over to the pavilion and this morning they had a session 
with uh, one of the ministers asked, explaining how investment in the country in green um, infrastructure can happen. And uh, like likewise with other countries, and the Bloomberg Philanthropies also has a booth here, uh, the World Health Organization, uh, all those big names. And it has been a good chance to move along the conversation because, let's face it, at the end of the day, for climate change and the climate targets to be delivered, you need to have civil society involved. It can't just be heads of state. Obviously, and and weather-related disasters have been in focus. And there's been discussions about the importance of having a global way to deal with them. Tell us more about that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, shortly after Guterres' speech, there was a quite a moving uh, video uh, just from the last year, literally just from the past 12 months, highlighting just how much of the world has been impacted by natural disaster and particularly related to water being a drought or um, floods and storms uh, you know from all continents were affected by it and it was quite you know important to see that um, the, there's this need to um, bring everyone together everyone's awareness um, that without tackling uh, the water the impact of lack or excess water in our cities and in our countries. We're not going anywhere. And it was another thing that was highlighted that cooperation and this climate solidarity pact is going to be crucial to make uh, a mechanism uh, available so that if when if and when disaster hits, there is not only the funds to deploy it, but all the learnings or the resiliency studies and all the learnings to quickly deploy uh, everything into action. Now the tagline of the COP27 summit is together for implementation. How much optimism is there now that the world will get its act together? How much optimism is there that something will be achieved in the days to come? Look, I, I understand the, the skepticism and I, I, I do believe it has some um, reason uh, we just need to look back at last year, COP26, and unfortunately did not deliver on the hype and the momentum that everyone thought uh, the summit had. Now, today is day one. If there's not optimism on day one, there's never going to be any. And everyone seems very excited to be here, very excited to be together. Um, we need to acknowledge, of course, the fact of its location, the fact that it's happening in Egypt, that is happening in the Middle East, North Africa region is hugely significant. Uh, it completely changed what is the priority, which nations get the, to speak, well, all of them get to speak, but you know what I mean, which nations do stand out the most. And it is important to have that shift of focus and that these events don't happen always um, in the you know, Western Northern Hemisphere. Um, now, there is optimism today, people are confident. And as you mentioned, the tagline there, there is a real acknowledgement that if while Glasgow was great and uh, achieved a lot, it was not enough. And now it's enough of talking and it's time to actually figure out how we can get things done. That was Marcos Carlos Rebello at the COP27 Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh. And Carlos, we'll be hearing more from you a bit later today. It's 12.19 here in London, 7.19am in Washington, D.C. You are with The Briefing.
We are going to take a closer look at Brazil's political transition now with Monaco's own Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Fernando has obviously been covering all the twists and turns of the Brazilian election for us and he joins me in the studio. Fernando, what is the latest? What have you been reading from today's newspapers? Well, so Folha de São Paulo uh, is talking, of course, the transition government started. Uh, who is leading that is Lula's vice president, Geraldo Alckmin. Uh, so he's working with uh, Ciro Nogueira from the Bolsonaro camp. Uh, and, you know, people are relieved that the transi- trans- you know the transition government is working. It's a tradition of Brazilian democracy. Lula will become a president only on the 1st of January. Uh, so, yes, I mean, we discussed last week how Bolsonaro gave an undignified concession speech. Some even say that it's not quite a concession speech. But the reality is he did say that he would work according to the Brazilian constitution. And one interesting thing... He didn't say he would lose, and he obviously hasn't caught Lula, for example, but he has said that he will follow rules. And it's interesting to compare with the US, especially with the midterms coming uh, out there as well, because when Trump lost the election, many of Trump's supporters were waiting until Trump said something. That's not exactly what happened in Brazil. So Lula is already actually working with some opposition parties in Congress who said very swiftly uh, when Bolsonaro lost that, yes, they accept that Lula is the winner. Even some governors who are pro-Bolsonaro said, you know, we're open to work with Lula. So there's been a little bit of a difference in tone between Brazil and United States, although, of course, there are similarities. And also, Marcos, the Brazilian press is looking at the potential cabinet uh, for Lula. I think he's got quite a lot of names to choose from because he did quite a grand coalition, not just with his own Workers' Party, but also with center-right parties. We have a few names here, potential names. Uh, Fernanda Dadge, of course, he's from the Workers' Party. Simone Tebet, she was at the third place in, in the Brazilian election. She comes from the centrist MDB party. She did an excellent campaign. And some people are saying that she, she's a contender for 2026. 2026. So she... I'm sure she'll have the ministry she wants. Uh, that's what the press uh, is saying. So it's quite interesting to see those all those names as well. And there's one more thing I would like to tell you. At the moment, Brazil has 22 ministries. Uh, Lula wants to increase that to 32. That's quite a lot. Does the country need 32 instead of well, 22? Well, that, that's the perennial question. I mean, clearly needs more investment than what Bolsonaro did. But yeah, perhaps the number is excessive. But there are new additions that are quite important. For example, there will be a, a creation of the ministry ministry for the indigenous uh, communities, which is quite uh, relevant. And that shows that Lula definitely will pay attention to that, uh, you know, that uh, sector as well. So a certain amount of optimism in the air, it sounds like. Well, let's talk about what else is making headlines in your home country. I think it's always interesting how how f- the football kit is, is a very political thing in, in Brazil. Very political. Actually, today, Marcos, is a big day because at 4 p.m. our time here in the UK, the Brazilian squad for the World Cup will be announced. So a lot of Brazilians will be paying close attention to that. And, you know, there's World Cup fever in Brazil for sure. O Globo, uh, one of our biggest newspapers, wrote an editorial uh, over the weekend saying that Lula should wear the Brazilian kit like all of us. It was a very interesting uh, editorial that I can relate very well. So they're saying that Lula should rescue the symbol that, you know, in the past used to belong to all Brazilians. Uh, But the reality is in the last four years, it's been very closely associated with Bolsonaro supporters. Even Bolsonaro, when when he said, uh, you know, you should go out in the streets wearing 
the Brazilian kit, uh, and, and it's a shame because you know when 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 the, our football team's playing, it's it's supposed to be for everyone, and of course our you know perhaps most popular player at the moment, Neymar, he also supported uh, Bolsonaro, but that doesn't mean that the whole Brazilian football team uh, supports that. So it's quite interesting, a very serious editorial talking about that, and it affects everyone's life. I mean, I love football, I love mm-hmm. wearing the kit. But I do have to be honest, I don't feel very comfortable, uh, especially in, in this uh, kind of a Bolsonaro era. So I know you are, you always do this. You're going to buy a football kit and, and then you are popping up to the office wearing it. How do you make it clear to the wider audience that you are not a Bolsonaro supporter, for example? It, it would be a hard one. Perhaps I'll, I'll add like a sticker, a, a red sticker on my kit. I'm thinking, Marcos, because I actually I might go after my working day and I might go and buy the kit uh, today, which is available. And there's another thing here. The sales are doing very well. So I'm not sure if it's just Bolsonaro supporters uh, buying the kit. I wonder if this reclaim is started now. There's one more story we have to cover quickly and it's it's quite an important news story, something that is, is very relevant in the Brazilian psyche, something that happened 30 years ago now there's been a new development. Yeah, I'm just mentioning this because yes, as I said, for Brazilians it was a crime that shook the country. Uh, basically this man died today of a heart attack. His name is Guilherme de Padua. He's a former uh, Brazilian actor. He killed a fellow actress 30 years ago. They were both, they, ha- they were a romantic pair in a, in a the the, the biggest telenovela of the time back in 92 and I think he had some issues with airtime and he basically killed her uh, and she was the daughter of the author of this soap opera and and this you know this really really shocked the country there was even a documentary by HBO Brazil this year which broke records of audience because people are very interested in that and he never get out of the news because he became a pastor and apparently he's a Bolsonaro supporter you know I'm not saying anything but you know that there is this connection there as well. So the whole country is very curious, I mean, about the life of this man, why this happened. And even 30 years ago, it's still a topic that a lot of Brazilians that were alive at the time, they're still shocked. I mean, they're still very curious. It is it is a crime, you know, that all Brazilians know uh, for sure. That was our senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Vasego. Thank you very much for this roundup of what's making headlines in your home country of Brazil. You are with The Briefing. And finally on today's programme, we head to World Travel Market London, which is taking place in the city's Excel Centre. Monocle's Sophie Monan-Coombs is there for us and she joins me now. Good afternoon to you, Sophie. Could you tell us about what you have seen so far? What's happening at that event and who are there? Yes, so this is an enormous travel event with representatives from all over the world. It's a huge trade event. I'm not sure if you're picking up, but there's a lot of drumming in the background right now. So I've just been wandering around this morning, um, seeing some of the different stands. As I said, there's people from all over the world. Unsurprisingly, the Middle East have some of the most impressive stands. There's some pretty incredible ones here. There's lots of different types of food, people in different national dress. There's tea ceremonies happening at the Morocco stand. There's this huge Egyptian crypt that's been built in the middle of the venue. And it feels like a real celebration of 
uh, different cultures, as well as this kind of travel event. It's actually just been lovely wandering around and getting a little slice of all these places uh, inside the Excel Centre in London. How optimistic is the atmosphere over there this year? Obviously, we see this event taking place off the back of the pandemic. How is that influencing the conversation? Yeah, so obviously coming off the back of the COVID pandemic, that, that's a really important part of all of the discussions that are happening. So I was listening to a talk this morning and 1.5 billion people made trips around the world in 2019. That went down to around 400 million in, in 2020, 2021. And so it is, you know, still recovering from the pandemic. But um, although 2022 started off really well, obviously Russia invaded Ukraine in February and that's had a huge impact. Um, now as well, there's other issues like the cost of living, which means that people are tightening their purse strings, not as ready to go on on holiday. So while the recovery seemed like it was happening from the pandemic, some people had more money in their pocket because they hadn't been on holiday for a couple of years or they hadn't uh, seen family and were really keen to go on, on holiday and, and see those family members. There are other issues now which are kind of um, having a huge influence. Well, Sophia, moments ago we heard from our own Carlotta Rabella, who is in Egypt for the COP27 meeting. Is that meeting being noted at World Travel Market at all? How, how dominant are the discussions about sustainability and the future? Yes, definitely. This is obviously happening at the same time as COP27 and um, sustainable travel is a really important discussion that's taking place here. It's not just about the environment for, you know, people who are in the travel trade. It's also about mitigating risk for the industry. One thing that I was particularly interested to hear about this morning was um, from a new industry report which talks to lots of people in the industry and also talks to consumers. And actually, the climate crisis was something that traders are far less concerned about than consumers. I imagine that will you know, shift in the coming years, but it is something that obviously people are aware about and they are trying to make choices in their own lives to mitigate their own effects on the climate. Tell us more about the discussions taking place over there. What does the future of travel look like, for example? Yes, yeah, so the future of travel tech, all these new innovations is something that's really important. There are lots of conversations happening about how airlines might change for the future, you know, fuel and things like that. There's also um, conversations about driverless vehicles and other kind of transport um, issues which are, are front of mind. Space travel is um, definitely present and will become ever more so. I was also interested to find out a little bit about some new travel hotspots and where people are kind of changing their habits. So obviously Greece has always been a great destination for lots of people in Europe, you know, particularly in the UK and uh, the Azores has become, uh, is kind of creeping up as this kind of new undiscovered um, place where people are really eager to, to go and visit and holiday there. So there's two new BA routes there this summer. So kind of these new undiscovered hotspots is quite interesting. And then finally, it's, it's interesting to kind of hear from people within the industry and how they are dealing with kind of human resource and recruitment issues. Obviously, lots of people left the industry during the pandemic. It didn't feel like a particularly secure job and so kind of reeling those people back in 
um, is really important, as well as making sure that there is gender equality throughout the industry and um, women's kind of roles in the travel industry, for example, as pilots, which is still pretty uncommon, and how the industry evolves in order to change that. Absolutely. Sophie, how does your day continue from now on? What are you still looking forward to? So I'm excited to talk to a couple of uh, travel ministers, ministers for tourism. So I think I'm going to talk to the Portuguese Secretary of State for Tourism, as well as uh, someone who's representing Las Vegas here, which is particularly interesting because um, they've got this mission to kind of change and expand how people think of Las Vegas tourism. And then I also might, you know, wander around, think about my own uh, possible uh, holiday destinations and maybe I'll get some ideas. Is it going to be Las Vegas next? <laughs> Who knows? It could be. It could be. That was Monaco's Sophie Monaghan Coombs joining us from World Travel Market London. Thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Kellen McLean. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time, but don't forget to tune in to the Monocle Daily, which is live at 1800 London time. I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>